You're listening to Radio Diaries. This is Joe. And I'm excited to tell you about the newest show in the Radiotopia family. It's called The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. I'm sure a lot of you listen to podcasts while cooking. Well, The Recipe is the podcast that will teach you how to be a better cook with tips from two seasoned pros, pun intended. Hosted by Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Walk and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen, The Recipe not only lets you learn new recipes, but also teaches you techniques and secret ingredients that'll up your cooking from just okay to restaurant quality. So welcome them to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb right now, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Radio Diaries is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. We also have support from Indeed. Instead of spending weeks searching for talent, Indeed matches you with quality candidates that fit your job description. Plus, you can connect with candidates faster by scheduling interviews, screening, and messaging them all in one platform. To try it out, listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com dot com slash diaries just go to indeed.com slash diaries right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed radio topia from prx from prx's radio topia this is radio diaries i'm joe richman today fly girls Going up, going up. Soon after he entered office, President Biden issued an executive order allowing transgender people to serve in the military. It was the latest in a long series of shifts in who can serve and who can't. Not long ago, of course, fighting in combat was for men only, and it wasn't until 1993 that Congress lifted a ban against women flying in combat. Jeannie Levitt became America's first female fighter pilot. She flew a total of 300 combat hours over Iraq and Afghanistan. But women actually started flying military aircraft much earlier than that, five decades earlier, during World War II. At the time, thousands of new airplanes were coming off assembly lines and needed to be delivered to military bases nationwide. But most of America's pilots were overseas fighting the war. So the Air Force launched an experimental program to train hundreds of female pilots. They were called the Women Air Force Service Pilots the WASPs. Fastening my seatbelt. Throttle is set. Fuel pressure is fine. Okay, now we're gonna start the engine. All clear. My name is Elizabeth Ayer Taylor, and we're in the Great Barrington Airport in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and I'm 79 years old. This is an Archer 2, Piper Archer 2 aircraft. All right, now we're taxiing down the runway. It's a little cold, and it's uh, we have a bit of a crosswind on takeoff. It's a bit windy today. Often when I go to the airport, their mail pilots will come in, and they see an old lady there, and they say, uh, 
how long have you been flying? And I say, for 60 years. They say, 60 years? And I say, yes, I was a wasp. And they said, a wasp? What's that? Cherokee 062. Okay, we're ready to go. My name is Libby Gardner, and I flew the B-26, the medium bomber, which is often referred to as the Widowmaker. My name is Caddy Landry Steele. I was assigned to the 369th Target Squadron at Biggsfield, El Paso. I'm Charlene Greger. I'm Ethel Meyer Finley. My name is Louise Bowden Brown. I'm Carol Bailey Bosca from Springfield, Ohio. I fell in love with every airplane that came along like the P-51, the B-24s. I love the P-47. Oh, we all love to fly. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked they needed pilots. There weren't that many people that flew in 1940, period, you know. The Army only had about 1,800 pilots after Pearl Harbor, and they were needing millions. I received a telegram in December of 1942 asking if I was interested in flying military aircraft. I didn't know anything about the WASP program. There had been rumors about something like this, so I quit school and started to work at the airport so that I could build up my flight time so that I could qualify for the program. At that time, there were some over 3,000 women who had a private license or more, and they started going down the list. And I started reading this telegram, and then on the bottom it said, you will, it didn't say we'd like to have you, or anything. you will report to the Statler Hotel on such and such a date and such and such a time for an interview. And I thought, my God, I've been drafted. This is Texas, cradle of our Army's Air Force. This is an AAF field, too. And out of those buses are stepping girls. Girls who give a new angle to an Air Force story. Everywhere, they're badly needed for ferrying duty so that the men can go off to fight while wasps help get their ships started on the road overseas. They're wasps, women's Air Force service pilots. Dear Mommy, the first day, it's really a lot different than I thought it would be. It's a big field with lots of airplanes. Man, oh man, think of the money we're costing Uncle Sam. It is still in the experimental stage. They are still quite doubtful of women pilots. We were supposed to be in bed by 10 o'clock and up in formation at 6.45, and that is all I know so far. We find out the rest hour by hour tomorrow. The trainees live in barracks, six to obey. They're civilians, but under army discipline. So everything is strictly GI. They must go through the same rigorous training given any soldier. 
Up at six, and a hard day ending long after the Texas sun has set. Sweetwater, Texas is the most godforsaken place. I mean, just dust, sagebrush, and dirt, and mesquite, and rattlesnakes. And even at night, it's hot as hell. Excuse my English. And here are all these women from different walks of life. Millionaire heiresses like Florsheim Shoes, Upjohn Drug Company, and then you had poor kids like me from the farm. And everybody was in the same boat, had the same ill-fitting clothes. You know, you arrived in your own clothes, but then you would report to supply, thinking, well, should I order 10 or a 12? And the sergeant behind the desk could say, 42 or 44. Flight suits we were wearing were for men. I mean, it was enormous. Enormous. You know, it was just enormous in every direction. Mine stood by itself. We'd have to get up in the morning, we'd march to the flight line, everybody would be singing. They'd say, fall in, and we'd all fall in, and they'd say, hip up, march, and we'd march to wherever we were going. And I wasn't in the habit of having seen yesterday every shave tail that came along. Some of them even younger than I, and some of them pretty stupid. I thought, this is a big mistake, until we got started in the airplanes. Next comes the training flight, so let the motor roar. Each flying student is required by Army regulation to don a parachute. And you go out and you put this big parachute on and you climb up into the airplane. You have to put your goggles and your helmet. We had to wear fur-lined jackets, fur-lined pants, and fur-lined boots because we were in an open cockpit and it was cold, it was in the winter time. So we'd climb in, and then an instructor would take you up and then he'd say, okay, honey, I'm gonna show you how to do a slow roll. He said, fasten your seatbelt, make sure it's fastened. So you'd fasten your seatbelt. With the student at the controls, the instructor in the rear seat, directs her in the finer points of flying military planes in a military way, with tricky maneuvers. first time you do that and he turns you over upside down, your arms fall out and your legs fall out and all the dirt falls out of the plane and you're just hanging there on the seatbelt. And often you would see this white thing floating down to the ground because somebody had forgotten to fasten their seatbelt and there would some girl would be floating down to the ground with her parachute. I'll tell you the first time I flew an HC6 tears rolled down my cheeks. I just thought, well, I'll never master this. It's too much for me. Take me back to the farm. <laughs> but anyway, you get over it. It's a funny thing, but you do. No longer are they the rookies of six months ago, but a smooth and well-disciplined detachment. Now the wasps are ready to go to work and do a job that has delighted all the Air Force officials. Good weather and bad, they fan out to various bases in California, Texas, Delaware, Michigan, and... We did a lot of odd jobs that they didn't want to waste a man on. Ferrying planes, testing planes, flying officers around, towing targets. We were in a tow target squadron. Our main mission there was training these boys at Fort Bliss in anti-aircraft because they were going to go overseas and try to shoot the enemy planes out of the sky. And to learn how to do that, 
They had to have somebody up there flying these targets for them to shoot at, and we were the duck. Now, guns ready, they practice on a target towed by a plane. You know, they were shooting live bullets at the target. And uh, one night we were towing in uh, a B-26, and the flak started bursting in front of us. And the target was behind us. So we had to take some evasive action to get out and call the ground forces and told them that we are not completing this mission. We're rolling in our target and going home. We'll come back tomorrow and see if you can shoot any better. Most of what we did was very monotonous. Those searchlight missions, we were up there at night flying these patterns, flying 45 degree angle to the right, 180 degree turn, 45 degree angle. For four hours we're doing this. 18 to 21 year old men are not very good at that because they want, they're all hot dogs. But women have been trained all their life to do repetitive jobs. You do the dishes, you know, three times a day, you make the beds every day. We're used to that kind of thing. And if we got some that were fun, like the uh, strafing and so on, that was just enough to, to keep us stimulated, you know. We, we didn't have to be flying under bridges or up box canyons all the time. I will admit that some months into it, I began to be a little bored with flying around in a rectangular pattern. The older man didn't think we could fly the airplanes. They didn't think we were strong enough. They didn't, uh, I don't think they trusted us. I would have gone into combat any minute. For the simple reason, I think if I'd have had some training, I think I probably would have been pretty good at dogfighting. In mass production in the United States is the B-29 Super Fortress, the largest, fastest, and most powerful bomber ever built. It was 1944 in July and the B-29 was going to be the biggest and the best bomber in the world. It was made for the long range. Nobody, of course, knew anything about it, any atomic bombs or anything at that point, but it would be the aircraft that would allow us to win the war in the Pacific. And that's why they were very anxious to get this into the inventory. But it had experienced some engine fires, and they were having these problems at the training bases with people who were reluctant to fly it. Each airplane had its own reputation, and they did not want the B-29 to have a bad reputation. And there was a man named Colonel Paul Tibbetts. He had the idea that if he could get two women to fly this, that he could take them to the training bases of the B-29 and show the men that it was so easy to fly, even a woman could fly it. That's how he chose the two of us. It was a awe-inspiring feeling, the power that you could feel in those engines. It was <laughs> like flying an apartment house, practically. I forget what the wingspan is, 144 feet, I think. But when you're flying, it felt so easy compared with what I thought it would feel like. It was easy to turn it. It was easy to climb it. It was easy to even stall it. It was a dream ship. I had no problem at all. And the word spread all over. My gosh, there are two women flying this thing. The worst thing that happened to me 
We were in fighter school and my roommate was killed. She was flying formation in an AT-6 and she was in the back seat. Her instructor was up front and uh, she was in the middle of a formation of three airplanes. And the fellows behind her must have taken their eyes off the other wing and their wing went through her hatch and hit her on the head and knocked her out. And her instructor couldn't raise her, so he bailed out. And she went in with the airplane. I had to take her body home to New York State from Brownsville, Texas. I had to tell her parents. I did not like that job. 38 women were killed in either training or assignments. Evelyn Sharp out in Oklahoma, that was an engine failure, of P-38. There was one out of Shawfield. She was out testing a BT-13. They found her. She had crashed. Some of them were pilot error, and some were engine problems, and some were collisions. And it was a rather sobering thing, but I don't know that it affected anybody's desire to go out right away again. Wars aren't very much fun. We were all losing our relatives, our boyfriends, our husbands, our brothers, and it, it just made everybody want to do as much as they possibly could to win the war and get it over with. But in the meantime, we were enjoying it. You must understand that we love to fly. And that was built in every single one of us. A lot of times you're by yourself, and to be up there by yourself, flying. And you can just fly around and look around or play hide-and-seek in the clouds. And then sometimes I'd fly and have cumulus clouds all around me and I'd be pretending I was New York City and going down, <laughs> down all the high-rises along the side were clouds. We just felt we had really won a prize to get to fly these airplanes, which were off-limits for us in any ordinary way and to get paid for doing it and to know that we were contributing to the war effort just too much. Very few men ever got a chance like that and here we were getting this chance. We had the best airplanes in the world, the best instructors in the world. We had it made and then all of a sudden the army says we don't need you anymore. We'll be back with our story about the wasps after this break. This episode of Radio Diaries has support from Warby Parker. Good eyewear shouldn't mean sacrificing a good price. That's why Warby Parker offers boutique quality eyewear starting at just 95 bucks. You can choose between prescription, sunglasses, progressives, or their new contact lenses, if that's more your style. They even have lenses that filter blue light. And after sitting in front of my computer for over a year on Zoom calls, blue light lenses seemed like an excellent idea. Or if you're someone who has a hard time making decisions, and I include myself, you can try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com diaries. That's warbyparker.com diaries. You're listening to Radio Diaries, back to our story about the women Air Force service pilots of World War II. 
to each member of the WASP. I'm very proud of you young women. You have freed male pilots for other work. But now the war situation has changed and the time has come when your services are no longer needed. If you continue in the service, you will be replacing instead of releasing our young men. I know that the WASP wouldn't want that. So I have directed that the WASP program be inactivated and all WASP be released on the 20th of December of 1944. My sincere thanks and happy landings always. H.H. H. Arnold, Army Air Force. General Henry H. Arnold of the Army Air Forces. There was a huge crowd there. General Arnold made the primary speech and it was a wonderful send-off. Frankly, I didn't know in 1941 whether a slip of a girl could fight the controls of a B-17 in heavy weather. Now, in 1944, it is on the record that women can fly as well as men. At the end of the ceremony, we all marched down. Of course, we all had our hair up. We were looking real nice. And then we sang the song. We're the last, last class of Avenger Field. It was a whole day of celebration. And then the next day, we all packed and left the field, went home. It was December 20th, 1944, and that's when we left. It was sad. It was really sad. I knew that I would never, never get in those airplanes again. City are gold blue and a heart that's true and we ain't gonna be here much longer. Two of the girls went up to Alaska and became bush pilots. Some found jobs in charter services. They dusted crops. They taught other people to fly. But they were the real exception. There just were not jobs for women as pilots. Not only the WASP, but all the other women that took part in, in the war effort, the women that manned the factories, the women that ran the farms, the women that built the ships, they all lost their jobs because the men came back. After the war, we went right back where we were. We were supposed to be home and have children and raise families, and we weren't supposed to be flying airplanes. We weren't supposed to be doctors and lawyers and engineers and all those things. We were before our time. If you have a daughter, teach her how to fly. If you have a son, throw the bastard in the sky, singing zoots, zoots, and parachutes, and wings of silver, too. He'll ferry airplanes like his mommy used to do. <laughs> 25,000 women applied. 1,837, I think, were accepted for training, and 1,074 graduated. It doesn't seem real to me sometimes, you know, that, uh, that I actually did that. If you were out in a crowd in a social conversation, someone said, uh, do you remember World War II? And you said, well, yes, I flew for the Air Force. And they would say, come on, don't be ridiculous. They didn't have any women in the Air Force. Great Barrington Airport, Cherokee 062. I'm flying at, uh, I'm at 1,200 feet, the airspeed is 60. We have a crosswind from the left, 
turning on to our final approach right now. Glad to land, we hope. back home again in one piece. Sometimes I have dreams that when I'm flying, B-25, B-26s, P-47s, and all those beautiful, you know, warbirds. I mean, I think it's funny because I haven't flown for so many years, and it seems strange to me that uh, at 85, <laughs> be dreaming about flying airplanes. Very often we can get a chance to ride in one of these airplanes that we used to fly. I don't want to ride in one. I don't want to ride in another AT-6 or a B-25. I want to remember it like it was when I did it. I think it's much more real to me and much more enjoyable to me to remember the way it was. In 1977, more than 30 years after the program ended, Congress declared that the WASPs were veterans of World War II, which meant they could finally receive full veteran benefits and military funeral honors. Of the 1,074 women who graduated as WASPs in the war, it's believed that fewer than 30 are still alive today. This story was produced by myself with Teal Kretsch and edited by Deborah George and Ben Shapiro. The Radio Diaries podcast is produced by Nellie Gillis. Radio Diaries is a small nonprofit organization. We could not produce these stories without support from you and from our funders. This week's episode has support from the National Endowment for the Humanities, National Endowment for the Arts, and NISCA. We are also proud members of Radiotopia for PRX. We will be back soon with a new episode. I'm Joe Richman. Thanks for listening. Radio Tokyo from Pete.